0: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I'm sure you've sung that song many times. Those words were written by John Newton in the 18th century. Uh, Newton, at the age of 11, went out to sea, where he not only learned about sailing his ship, but he also learned about the sins of the world. As time passed, Newton grew in both his skill as a seaman as well as the sins that he committed. He eventually was given his own ship, as a captain, and he became involved in the slave trade of West Africa, carrying men, women, and children in chains across the sea to sell and There was one of these trips where Newton was sailing across the ocean when a severe storm hit, one he had never seen before. It was so bad he just uh, he feared that the ship was going under, and he cried out to God to save himself and the ship and God heard his prayer, the storm relented. And Newton later repented, accepting Jesus as his Savior. And at the age of 39, Newton left the sea, he left the slave trade, and he became an ordained pastor. Newton always said that he marveled at the grace of God, grace that was so amazing it could save a wretched sinner like him. At the age of 82, Newton neared death, and he, even though his memory was fading, he said there were two things he could still remember, how great a sinner he was and how amazing the grace of God was. Today I want us to turn in our Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we're going to look at another story of amazing grace. This is a story of a man by the name of Mephibosheth. As we look at this man this morning, we're going to see that he received grace, grace from the king. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin reading in 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verses 1 through 5. It says, And David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amniel, and Lo-Debar. Now, if we were doing a chronological study through the book of Second Samuel, what we'd find is at this point in David's reign, everything is going great. David is at the peak of his power. There's been uh, one blessing after another. There's just been a line of success. His sin with Bathsheba, where he committed adultery with her and murdered her husband Uriah, is not to come for two more chapters. So as David is sitting on the throne at this point, he's looking back at how blessed he is. And as he does, he remembers a time where he wasn't quite as blessed. There was a time before this where things were, were, he was struggling, he was in danger of losing his very life. King Saul was on the throne. Saul had a son by the name of Jonathan, and, and David was seen as a threat to Jonathan. So Saul was trying to kill David. Now Jonathan intervened, he protected the life of David. And, and now he remembers how he promised to preserve Jonathan and his family. This promise is found in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 17, where Jonathan said to David, And if I am still alive, will you not show me loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the, Lord, uh, may the do- Lord require this of the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. So what happens is Jonathan is next in line to be the king after his father Saul. But God reveals that David is going to be the new king. And Jonathan steps in to intervene, and and David makes this covenant with Jonathan. Now Saul, the king, was worried about this as well, because in 1 Samuel 24, verses 20 through 22, Saul says, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul... Now, if you're wondering, why are these guys so worried about David killing off all of Saul's uh, kin? The reason for that is that's what kings did. If you became the new king and there was a predecessor, uh, another line to the throne, you wiped everybody out. Because if you left anybody alive, there was a chance they would come back and retake the throne. Uh, We find examples of this all throughout the Bible. Uh, one example is in 2 Kings 11.1 1, where it says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ohazii, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all his royal offspring. Now that's the mom. The mom wanted to be the queen. She wanted to reign. So she goes in and she kills off all the grandkids. Now her plan is thwarted because there was one that she missed by the name of Joaz and some faithful servants hid this baby away. Seven years passes. He becomes a little boy, but they think he's old enough now to be the king. And so they put him on the throne. They declare, here's the real king. And they go in and they wipe out grandma. Athalia is executed. So when we read here in 2 Samuel 9 where David is asking, is there anyone left of the line of Saul? Everybody thinks, well, David is trying to consolidate power. David is just making sure there's nobody left who could come back and take the throne. So one of the people David checks in with is a man by the name of Ziba. Ziba had served King Saul. And so he was in the cabinet of the previous king. He brings him in in verse 2, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. <laughs> Ziba is a guy who will do anything to take care of himself. And you see it right there. When he says, I'm your guy, David, he's saying, Listen, king, I have no loyalty to the past. Uh, because servants of the past could be killed off too. You didn't want the previous administration's people in place. And so he's saying, I will, I will do whatever you want. I'm your guy. I'm your servant. If you look at chapter 16 and 19, you'll see that is a guy who doesn't have any loyalty to anyone but himself. He's always throwing everybody else under the bus to promote or protect himself. So when David says, is there anyone hidden away to show his loyalty to the new king? He says, let me tell you about a guy who's hidden away. There's still one person from Saul's line that's left. Now, fortunately, we find that David's motives are pure, because if they had not been, he would have brought in Mephibosheth. And we'll see in a moment that Mephibosheth also had a son, so he would have killed off the last of Saul's line, and that would have been the end of it. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Now, in 2 Samuel 4, 4, we're told how this young man becomes crippled. There it says, now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and he fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So what happens is, as we've talked about, when kings are killed, you go in and you wipe out the whole line. Saul and his son Jonathan are in battle at Jezreel the battle goes against them, they're killed, they fall on their swords, and word gets back to the palace that the king and his son are dead. Now there's this loyal nurse back at the palace with this grandson, the Saul Mephibosheth, and she knows that the next step of the new people coming in is to come to the palace and kill everybody. So she grabs this little boy up, he's five, We're not told exactly what happens, but in her haste to flee, maybe she drops him out a back window. She could have been running and fallen on him and crushed his legs. Whatever happens, the injury is so severe, he's crippled. Now he survives. And and I mentioned to you that there was a a son of Mephibosheth. If you look at 2 Samuel 9, 12, you'll see that that more than a decade has passed. Remember, people got married back then, boys around 15, 17 years old. So he was five. So at least 10 years has passed because Mephibosheth now has a son of his own. And and what happens is Ziba says to the king, uh, there's this one guy left in verse 4. David says, where is he? And, and what Ziba says is, behold, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Amniel, in Lo-Dabar. Now, that would be like him coming up here today and saying, hey, Roger, he's at 1010 Roletto Drive right up the street here in Castle Hills. He gives him the very house, so to speak, the very location. And when he tells him he's in lo Debar, you know why this guy hasn't been found. The Hebrew word for no is low, and Debar means pasture. So this town is named No Pasture. It tells you it's out in the sticks. It's a desolate little dump. It's across the Jordan River. It's out in the wilderness. It's not a place you would find royalty. This guy's been hiding away in the sticks for more than a decade. And his and Mephibosheth, when, when David is told where Mephibosheth is, he's been safe For this time hiding out in this little desolate place. But this is all going to change in verse 5. Because it says, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amniel, from Lodabar. If you are Mephibosheth, this is the day you have dreaded your entire life. You're there at home and suddenly there's this knock at the door. You open the door and you see the king's soldiers standing there. And you're thinking, you found me. And it says, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amniel, from Lod to Bar. And in verse 6, it says, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face and he prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, here is your servant. Now I want you to remember the setting. The last time Mephibosheth was in the palace, he was five years old. And so that means that he was just a little boy, and he would run the the halls of the palace. You could hear the pitter-patter of little feet echoing through the marble uh, there in the palace. And he would run into the throne room as a little boy, and there's Grandpa, King Saul, up on the throne, and his daddy... Saul's son, Jonathan, is sitting right next to him. As he runs into the throne room, he's used to seeing friendly faces. But this time, there's no pitter-patter of little feet. Instead, there's this clump, clump, clump of crutches as he walks through the halls with guards all around him. He comes into the throne room, and instead of looking up at friendly faces, he sees King David. And it says he comes before the king and he throws his crutches aside and he falls flat on his face. He prostrates himself in front of the king. You can picture him shaking in fear, not because of the cold of the marble floor he's laying on, because this is the moment he's feared his whole life. When David looks at him and says, Mephibosheth? He's he's waiting to feel the cold steel of a sword on his neck as David says, I finally found you. The throne is finally secure. But instead of that happening, something surprising happens. Because in verse 7, it says, As David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Mephibosheth is shaking in fear on the floor. David comes down, and rather than drawing a sword, he he kneels down on the ground next to him. He puts his hand on his back. He says, Mephibosheth, don't fear. I don't want to know what your last meal is going to be. What I want you to know is you're welcome here in the palace. You're welcome to have every meal from here on out with me seated at the king's table. Mephibosheth, you're not a stranger. You're not a danger to the throne. You're, you're adopted into the family. He says, not only do you get to sit at the table with me, but he says, everything that belonged to your family before, it's yours again. He restores everything. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba, and he said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Here's Ziba thinking, well, if I turn over the last of Saul's line, I'm going to get rewarded. And you know what his reward is for the betrayal? David says, you and the 36 people of your household get to be the servants to Mephibosheth the rest of your life. You get to cultivate the land. You get to bring in the crops. You get to take care of his every need. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. I want you to linger over this moment and think about Mephibosheth. That moment came where he was in fear of losing his life. That morning he had been in a place called Lo Debar, no pasture, a desolate, barren land where they were barely scraping by and suddenly he's in a place of plenty. He's been given pastures that are so fertile and vineyards that are so full of of fruit and olives and various things that it takes 36 people to work the land. he's told Mephibosheth, all this is yours. And beyond that, you're on the king's pension. You get to eat at the table. You don't have to take care of anything ever again. You will be seated at the king's table, not as an outsider, not as a threat so I can watch over you, but as one of my sons. You've been adopted into the family. And as Mephibosheth is hearing these things, he's overwhelmed because verse 9 says, again, he prostrated himself. And he said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Do you know what the name Mephibosheth means? Of course you do. It means one who scatters shame. This guy was despised. His name was one who scatters shame. And you see that he has this same low view of himself because what he says is, I'm roadkill king. He says, I'm a dead dog. He says, well, what do you have to do with me? I'm this crippled kid from a desolate place and, and you're promoting me as part of the family? He says, what have I done to deserve such grace? Grace. And David says, absolutely nothing, because that's what grace means. Grace means that we get what we don't deserve. Mephibosheth says, I don't deserve anything. The world has contempt for him. He has contempt for himself. The world said the way you deal with a Mephibosheth is you kill the kid. You get rid of him. But in God's economy of grace, he's given a place at the king's table as a part of the family of God. I wonder how many of us understand that we're just like Mephibosheth in this story. How many of us understand that we're just like Mephibosheth? That we're morally crippled by sin. That we're people that as we come before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we don't deserve anything but death. But instead, God offers us grace. Grace is defined in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one should boast. I don't know how many of you are like I was. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I grew up having this, this fear of God. I had my sins that I would go and confess, and I was always worried, am I in or am I out? And, and every day I was wondering, you know, am I going to make it to heaven or not? And I had this fear of God. I saw God, like Mephibosheth did, David, just waiting to, to smite me. I thought God was up in heaven with his finger on a big smite button going, now? No? Uh, you know. And that was me. I was living in fear. But then I came at the age of 16 to understand grace. That it wasn't how often I went to church, how many good things I did in my life, because none of those things could ever earn my way to God. For by grace you've been saved through Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And as I came to understand grace, God's offer of, of salvation through his son, he had everything to offer to me and I had nothing to offer to God, just like Mephibosheth. As he lay there on the floor in front of the king, what could he give to King David? And David offers him grace and says, you get to be a part of my family. He says, do not fear does anybody here this morning need to hear those words do not fear as you read through the gospels you will find that the number one most repeated command of jesus is do not fear do not fear shows up in the bible more than 365 times every single day god says to us do not fear I don't have my hand lingering over a smite button. I'm not waiting to get you. I'm waiting to give to you grace. Grace. If you think that hiding from God is what you have to do because you're a wretched sinner, well, you've got half of the, the equation right. We are wretched sinners. We're not worthy to be in God's presence. But that's not why he invites us to be part of his family. What Romans 5.8 tells us is God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, when we were in rebellion, when we were far from God, Jesus died for us. I open this message by talking about John Newton, who came to understand this truth. He said, amazing grace it saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Were you blind? Have you come to see? Have you come to understand who God is and his great love for you? King David learned about God's grace as well. As I said, at this moment, he was at the peak of his power. But in two chapters, he will commit adultery with one of his inner bodyguard's wives, Uriah. He commits adultery with his best friend's wife. And then he turns around and ultimately has Uriah killed to try to hide his sin. David was afraid if his sin got out, he would be ruined, but he was ruined because of his hidden sin. And God sends a prophet who confronts him, and when David's sin is exposed, he repents, and he's forgiven by God. He's restored. You can write down Psalm 32. Write down Psalm 51. Go home and read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. These were written by David after He confessed his sin. After he was found uh, guilty, he was found forgiven by God because of his confession. And he was restored. And if you're here this morning, friends, and you're trying to hide your sin because you're afraid if God knew about it, you would be destroyed. Can I tell you something? He knows. He knows every single thing any one of us has ever done. And he doesn't destroy us, but he demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we come to Christ, we find forgiveness. And when we who are Christians come to God and we confess our sins, 1 John one nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. There's not a single sin you can commit that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's one unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that amounts to a rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah. When you come to faith in Christ, Romans 8, 1 tells you there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God offers you a gift of grace. And what he says to us is, if you come to me, do not fear. Your sins are forgiven. He invites you to become a part of the family, to sit at the table with the King of kings and the Lord of lords one day in heaven to enjoy the banquet that will be there. Mephibosheth is welcome to the king's table, not because he deserved to be there. The only reason he's there is because he was the son of Jonathan. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the only reason we will be welcome to the king's table in heaven is because we are there related to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God the Father welcomes us into the family because of our relationship through Jesus In 1 Samuel 20, verse 4, David was asked to show the loving kindness of the Lord. And here in verse 3 in our passage, David asked, Is there anyone left that I may show the kindness of God to? Now, reading that in English doesn't really get the whole depth of what this word means. Because you're thinking, I've shown love, I've shown kindness to people before. What's the big deal about God's loving kindness? The word that is used in those verses is hesed. Now, if you're going to say it the right way in the Hebrew, it sounds like a cat coughing up a a hairball. It's chesed. Now, that's not very pretty, is it? So we say chesed. And this word is found all throughout the Bible. It's defined as loving kindness, mercy, loyalty, faithfulness, commitment. It's summed up as loyal love. J.G. Baldwin says it is a word which includes the warmth of God's fellowship as well as the security of his faithfulness. The warmth of God's fellowship as well as the security of his faithfulness. Hesed speaks of God's covenant loyalty to his people. It involves a grace that is extended even when it's not deserved. Let me unpack this word further for you. To fully grasp what this word means, it is never a special favor. Rather, it is always the provision of an essential need. Did you hear that? It's not a special favor. It's the provision of, a special, of an essential need. Hesed is an action that is performed for a weaker party by one that is more powerful. And this superior party is always free not to act on behalf of the weaker party. So this superior party, another thing about it is this is the one who is the only sole source of assistance to the weaker party. Now, are you beginning to see where this word goes for us as believers in Jesus? Have you ever committed a sin? The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death. There's a physical death where we dry here on earth, and then there is a second death in Revelation 20 called the second death. Death. That means we get sent to hell. And so the wages of sin is death. Is that an essential need in your life? When your earthly life is over, it says as sinners, we will be separated from God for all eternity. And so as we think in terms of of this need in our life, there is a superior party, God, who acts on behalf of us, the weaker party. And remember that this superior party is the sole source of need. There's not a single one of us as men and women, boys and girls who could take care of this need. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are you beginning to see the the dire situation that we're in as sinners? But then God, the superior party, met this essential need in our life because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as we saw in the definition of hesed, the superior party doesn't have to act to help the one in need. God did not have to do anything for us. He could have said, you sinned, you owe the consequence of your sin, you will be separated in hell from me for all eternity. But that word but, which we also saw in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's grace offers a gift of eternal life. It's free to us, but it costs God everything. His very life, as Jesus left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to take on flesh and blood so that he could ultimately go to a cross and die to pay the wages of sin. The penalty of sin was death. That's why Jesus died for us. And what he says to us is this morning that if you will receive my son as your savior, you will receive this gift of grace, you will be adopted into the family. It's Romans ten nine that says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead after he was crucified, then you will be saved. God offers you this gift of eternal life. And as we look at this story of Mephibosheth, it's a story of God's grace. It points us there as we've been invited to come and become a part of the king's family, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, to be welcome to come into heaven and sit at the, the banquet table for all eternity with Jesus. King David asks, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, the Hesed of God unto him? And today the king of kings is asking us, is there anyone here today who has not yet received my hesed, my covenant loyal love, my kindness, my gift to you? In John 1.12 we're told, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He says, come to me. Accept the gift of grace, and you will be made a part of the family. Like Mephibosheth, you as an outsider will be brought in. You'll be welcomed into the family to sit at the king's table. Mephibosheth took advantage of this grace offered to him. As the story closes in verse 13, saying, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was, he was, home, he was lame in both feet. He was lame in both feet, is tacked on at the end there. I think this line is there to remind us of the helpless, broken condition that Mephibosheth was in. As a recipient of God's grace, we're being reminded that it was only because of grace that he was welcome. He was hobbled just as you and I have been hobbled by sin. But God left his throne in heaven to come to earth to ultimately go to the cross to pay that penalty of death we owe. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we'll be welcomed to the king's table in heaven one day. You know, Mephibosheth was reminded every single day of the grace he had received. He came to eat at the king's table. Picture the dining room there's this huge, beautiful table set with every succulent food you could think of, beautiful silver, gold platters filled with food. And, and there's King David in his crown and his royal robe seated at the, the, at the head of the table. And all around the table is his family. You read the Bible. The Bible tells you about Ammon, his oldest son. He would have been there. And his other son, Absalom, is described as being this, this handsome guy, this beautiful man. He would have been there. Tamar. His daughter is also described as this woman of beauty. She would have been seated at the table of her father. There would have been others around the table. Joab, the commander of the army, this, this massive, mighty warrior, this battle-hardened, muscular guy, he's, he's seated there at the table. As you're looking around the banquet table, it's a list of the who's who of the beautiful people and the powerful. And as you're, you're surveying the, the dinner and the people who are there, all of a sudden you hear, clump, clump. Clump. And the sound is echoing down the halls. And everybody's there at the table waiting to start eating, but they're waiting for Mephibosheth. And as he enters the room, dragging his two broken feet, his crippled body, as he clumps his way to the table, you're thinking, this guy doesn't belong. But then he sits down at the table. He slides his, his crippled legs under the tablecloth of grace. And it covers him and he looks just like everybody else around the table. And friends, that's us today. We will be with God in heaven one day. And as crippled, broken sinners who have been forgiven and made whole, we are covered by the tablecloth of grace. And that's why we're there in heaven one day because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we end today, we're coming to the communion table. As we come to this communion table, it reminds us of the grace of God. It reminds us how, as broken men and women, as boys and girls who have committed sin, who were far from God, who were deserving of death, have been welcomed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come and join him at the table in heaven, to come and be seated at the feast. The communion table reminds us, as we've seen uh, recently in the Gospel of Luke of the Passover table, that place where God pointed to his redemption as he rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then Jesus took those elements, and he took the bread, and he said, This is my body, which is being given for you. This, is my, this cup of redemption is my blood, the cup of the new covenant. And today, that's what we're reminded of as we come to this communion service. In a moment, the elements are going to be passed, and there are two cups that are together. And as the plate comes by, I want you to take both cups. They're, they're one on top of each other, and you take both of the cups out. And one contains a piece of bread representing the body of Jesus. And the other one is juice representing the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Jesus took on flesh and blood because he had to take on our sins. He had to go to the cross and be the payment for the penalty of death that we owed. And this is why Jesus came. And we're reminded that for those of us who have come to him as our personal savior, that we've been welcomed, we've been made a part of the family. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus as your savior, I invite you today to take the bread and the the juice and to say to God, I recognize my need for you to be my savior. And today, Jesus, I accept you by faith, is the one who died for me. Remember John 1, 12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. And for the rest of us who have already received Jesus as our Savior, this is a time to be reminded of his grace and mercy in our life, to thank him for the death he died. And if you have any sins that you've not confessed, use this time to confess those. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess them. So take and hold the elements, and we'll take them together in a moment. Will you serve us, please? In the book of Hebrews, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. The reason Jesus took on physical flesh and blood was because there had to be a perfect and permanent sacrifice offered. It's why John the Baptist pointed to Jesus Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to take our place, dying on the cross, to pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine, and to wash away our sins by his blood, the blood of the Lamb Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Will you join me in prayer, please? Gracious God, we thank you for your grace. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Father, your love has no bounds. And your love is limitless in its ability to deal with our sins that separated us from you. But we have to receive that gift. And so we thank you, God, for all who know you. I pray, Father, if there's anyone today who's not yet received your son they would receive your gift of grace. And as those who have been recipients of your grace and reminded of it today again, may we go into the world and share the good news of your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of life. Thank you for giving us your son, God the Father. Holy Spirit, would you help us to be your witnesses to the world in which we live? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.